Hey guys, in this episode of Why'd You Buy That, I'm joined by Dan Seetaller and friend of the podcast, Jessica Steele, and we talk about the subscription economy. It feels like these days you can buy almost anything by subscription, so we dive deep into that. And then we actually have a quiz where I ask Dan and Jess to name the show and the network that is uh, given the description of the show. And there is just so many different streaming networks. It was fun to dive into that. On part two, we talk with Alyssa Ponticello, fashion and food blogger and social media influencer at RunwayChef.com and RunwayChef on Instagram about what it's like to be an influencer, how she does basically lives luxuries on a budget and what's the through line that goes through her purchases from luxuries to bargains. Because in addition to having a curated, beautiful blog, she also is not afraid to bargain hunt. And sometimes it's one and the same. And then finally, Jess gives her thoughts on the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her contributions to financial equity in America. So it's a real good chock full pod. And thanks for downloading and tuning in. So today we're going to talk about subscriptions, and I thought I would start off with a little story. So do you guys know what VHS cassettes are? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You do? Okay. (laughs) I still don't know how old I am. So you guys know about Blockbuster. Mm -hmm. Yep. So Blockbuster, for those that may not know, was a brick-and-mortar store where you could go and you could check out and rent VHS tapes and DVDs and bring them home to your house and then watch them and you would have a day or maybe a weekend to watch them and it was fairly expensive if i remember i was like five dollars or five dollars and some change to watch them watch a movie but where they'd always get you right is bringing that movie back and you'd have late fees and if you ever forgot it for like three days now you were out like 10 12 bucks or like 18 bucks or something like this to watch a movie from from blockbuster is this uh this is familiar did you guys ever check out anything from blockbuster yeah a couple of times okay yeah, for sure. Except for I'm from such a small town that we did not have a blockbuster. We had like a mom and pop VHS store that was called Star Video. Yep. Nice. And, you know, you had to like return it or rewind it for them before you brought it back. You know, they didn't have like the machines apparently that did that. So you got mm-hmm. to see if you hadn't rewound it back to the um, beginning of the video. And Oh, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. yeah it took um, I think I was in like late high school when our town got a blockbuster. So that was, you know, a really nice, really big deal. That didn't last long, huh? I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the story is, is there was a new service that was coming up where you could get your DVDs by mail, right? It was Netflix. But you would put your order in for the DVDs like online, not via smartphone. This not there yet. <laughs> not there You're yet at all. <laughs> right. And then so you would order them, but the DVDs would take a, a few days or every a week to get to you or something. But you were on a subscription. And so you could have like I don't know, three D- DVDs at one time, or you would subscribe to getting these movies. And so Blockbuster. I guess this was time when things were really shifting because they saw this. And I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember how they came up with their own subscription model? And you would pay $7.99 a month or something like this. And you could have three movies from Blockbuster 
and you could keep them and then, but you could, you could take them back and you could get new ones. So he had this slight advantage over Netflix and where you actually didn't have to wait a week to like see the movie you wanted to see. There's no streaming, like no streaming. Yeah. All this we're talking about going and picking up what you wanted to see. So I subscribed to Blockbuster. So that was like the change from, you know, purchasing and renting to the subscription. So I could just have three movies at any time that I wanted to, to watch that, you know, the coda to this is very soon they started running out of like the movies that people wanted to see and they shut their subscription service down and Netflix just started getting, you know, bigger, bigger, bigger. And now we know how that ended. Like blockbuster has gone the way uh, is, you know, practically extinct. So just got me thinking about subscriptions and I was wondering what subscriptions do you guys have currently or have had in the past that you really enjoyed or have not enjoyed and had to cancel because everything we do now seems to be moved to this subscription model. Yeah, that's interesting. As I'm looking over, so I just pulled up weekly all my recurring expenses and then grouped them by category here. So I've got six subscriptions and they're mostly all software based actually so music spotify disney plus for tv apple arcade which we talked about in our last podcast google drive i pay like the bare bones plan i don't know what it is like 50 terabytes or something it's a dollar 99 a month and then i use a note-taking app called bear which is a dollar 60 a month and then my last subscription is amazon prime which is software and you know shipping products to your house so that's kind of and interesting. Weekly, weekly for seven ninety nine a month. Weekly, that's right. Paying myself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, even even we're part of the subscription economy, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But it's interesting to me. I I want to hear your guys. As uh, I'm surprised that all six of mine are software. I don't have anything else. I don't have like food food subscriptions or anything else. Yeah, I think I'm actually tied with you, Dan. There, and I've got Spotify, and we also have Sirius XM, which is you know more in the car, but that's a subscription model. Then we've got Hulu, Netflix, and Amazon Prime, which, you know, Prime Video, I guess, is is the part of that, which would relate to kind of streaming. And then Google Drive as well. But outside of those, I have definitely tried various like ship to your home tangible product type subscription models before to varying effects. Yeah. Tell us more. So the first one, I think the first one I ever tried was Blue Apron. So I don't know if it's just living in New York where a lot of people don't necessarily cook, but it feels like you can't walk down a block without seeing an ad somewhere, you know, on the subway or on the street for Blue Apron or on Spotify. Like I just, there was a time when you, I was like, I better sign up for this. (laughs) So that is a kind of home meal prep subscription. And, you know, the benefit is that I think you can choose how many people you're cooking for. And, you know, you can go down to one or two, which is good. So that it feels like you're not wasting a lot of ingredients, but they're sending you, I think it was three meals a week. And, you know, you get your, all of your ingredients, even all of your seasonings, like in little bags. So you really have everything you need to make that full meal, um, a little recipe card. And, you know, in the case that, again, you don't have a lot of time necessarily, or you're not someone who naturally kind of just is good in the kitchen. I think there was a benefit that way to just having it kind of like very accessible. But I definitely didn't think it was super cost effective. You know, I want to say it was maybe $60 a week. You know, that's Mm -hmm. 
three meals for just the two of us. And yeah, so it's like $10 per person per meal. Yeah. $20 a meal. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's like, you know, that, that beats certainly ordering takeout for those three meals or going out to eat somewhere in New York, but it doesn't beat just going to the grocery store and, you know, kind of meal planning yourself and having some of those ingredients overlap. And so we ended up not keeping up with it. I think we did, you know, maybe a couple months to try it out. And, you know, you could pause a week if you were going to be away or something, but for the most part, that one didn't just didn't really feel like it was actually a a great value for our lives or like something that we were going to really benefit from. Have you guys tried any of the food ones? No, haven't. Alyssa told us about kind of a similar experience when we were talking to her, but yeah, haven't, haven't tried it myself. I figured that I would kind of end up with those similar results. Yeah, I think in a lot of these, the next one that I tried to, I feel like you're paying in some ways for a little bit of a novelty or a little bit of like an excitement of something being dropped off at your door, I think, you know, which is fun. But, you know, if you're kind of trying to be really budget conscious, I, I don't know how how much it pays off in the end. But the the second one that I tried more recently is called Newly, N-U-U-L-Y. And it's a fashion subscription service. So this one, it's similar to like a Rent the Runway or, you know, some of those types of models where, you know, as opposed to a, let's say a stitch fix, which they pick the clothes kind of for you and send them to you. Newly, you do get to pick the pieces that you want and you're, you know, kind of renting them for the month, I'll say. So you can pick, Newly was, I think, six items. I want to say for $89 or $99 a month at the time. Um, This was last year. And they're from kind of name brand retailers. I think, you know, they've got stuff from, let's say, Anthropology and Free People and some Nordstrom brands, you know, definitely kind of targeting that 20 to 30 year olds female demographic. And it was really fun. You know, I got to pick new clothes. They came to me. I got to return them at the end of the month. But I feel like either you wore something and you loved it and then you actually wanted to keep it and then you end up buying it and that's an added cost. And it may be something that like one of the things I fell in love with was this sequin party dress that I had (laughs) gotten for the month you know, it was around the holidays. So I wore it to a party. And at first I was thinking, oh, great. I've saved myself the cost of buying a party dress for the holidays. But I loved it so much once I got it that then I did end up buying it. I was like, maybe I wouldn't have even bought anything (laughs) new for it. Like they've they've tricked me. Um, (laughs) That is funny that they gave you so much value that you decided (laughs) to buy it and used to say that they tricked you. That's like an interesting (laughs) perspective. (laughs) It's like, seems to me like you decided to buy it. (laughs) No, it was all newly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know. You know, I think at the time, especially when I tried newly, I was, you know, kind of making a really conscious effort to shop less, just kind of break that mentality of like, okay, every month I need a new sweater. And so I thought, okay, well, Newly will let me still have the new sweater every month, but I, you know, I'm not ending up buying it. But, you know, if there was a month where I maybe wouldn't have bought any clothes anyway, I still ended up paying $100 just to like try things on. So mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. I felt conflicted about it. And I did that for probably... It may have been four or five months, like a little while that I gave it to kind of try it out. And I ultimately didn't stick with that one going forward. But seems like a pretty good model to me, actually. Like it looks like their price may have gone down a little bit. I'm just looking at their site right now. It says it's $88 a month for six items. Mm -hmm. 
And for like those name brand clothes, I mean, some of that stuff from like, uh, where were the places you were saying like they were from? Anthropology, free people. Yeah. yeah, you're, you're definitely like, that's expensive. Mm-hmm. And I think from what I remember, you did get a discount if you bought one of the pieces. So mm-hmm. you were not paying quite full price for it if you wanted to keep something out of your monthly box. So, I mean, I, I think those types of models, the Rent the Runway and Newly, I, I think they're doing very well. You know, it may not have been a fit for me, but I feel like those companies are just really growing these days. I try to, um, one of those boxes that deliver clothes to you as well. But whenever I got, I'm so tall that whenever I tried to try on the clothes, they just didn't, they just didn't fit. So I ended up canceling that subscription. But the idea of it was appealing enough for me to, to try it out and give it a whirl. I think that the company that had that box got acquired by Nordstrom. Well, you know, too, right now, it, people aren't in stores as much. So these models where you can kind of try on clothes and the comfort and safety of your homes, um, I have to imagine, are, you know, really appealing, too. I think I've looked at that same one, a trunk club. Is yeah, that's that, it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I looked mm-hmm. at that one, too. That seemed really good. I liked... uh the onboarding experience was like really fancy. Like you, mm-hmm. they assign you a designer who's going to talk to you about your interests and, you know, pick out things for you, which I kind of liked because I, I think a designer could do a better job than I could like picking out a wardrobe, you know? So that was one of the aspects that I felt like this is like really nice. If you go to like a department store, you know, you're not getting that kind of kind of service so Mm-mm. i never actually subscribed to it so, <laughs> i know, know and you're killing cool. it in that green t-shirt man so don't even <laughs> thank you just Drew. joking with you <laughs> this like, t-shirt I'm, i should not you, i should not talk up. i mean look look this, at this did i talk like, about this t-shirt on before on, on no please i want to hear all about it so my wife bought me these t-shirts from a company called zivi for christmas I think this last Christmas. And they're like nice t-shirts. I can't remember how much they are. Part of me wants to say they're like $35. I think they're around $35 a piece. They're t-shirts, but they're they're longer and they have like a scoop back. So this is not one of those. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) So she bought me like five of those. I really like them a lot. But also I like to get new clothes more regularly. And so $35 for t-shirts like kind of high. And so I bought some t-shirts on Amazon that were $10 a piece. I bought five of them. And they're very thin, which I really like in a t-shirt. I don't like thick t-shirts that are like restrictive, but the quality is like pretty low. So this particular shirt, my wife washed and then she hung it out, but she thinks they're just garbage shirts. She's like, she's not really interested in supporting me with it. So Jess, Jess, garbage shirt or not garbage shirt? (laughs) From what I can see, not garbage shirt. You can only see from the chest up. If you could see lower down, you'll you'll know the problem. (laughs) So she lays out the shirt. And the thing about the shirt is that it's starting to twist. Like, I don't know if you've ever had a shirt that just like over time, the, the seam going from the armpits down to your waist just like twists. And so it starts getting sideways on you. And uh, I gave her a really hard time because she did not even bother to straighten it out when she laid it to dry. And so it just dried like straight up twisted. And now if you could see the bottom of this shirt, you would know it was a $10 shirt. So wait, wait, wait. Let's go back to I gave her a hard time (laughs) when she didn't lay out my clothes properly. I'm doing my laundry. (laughs) That's Uh, not fair because I do laundry too. And I lay out her clothes. 
She just happened to be the one doing the load of laundry. It wasn't a female thing. With a vendetta against that garbage <laughs> shirt. She's like, this shirt's a waste. Just throw it down. I can't make fun of you because Tracy does the laundry here too. So. <laughs> well, we need to get like Jess and just sign up for the service. We needed all fights about the laundry. Solve <laughs> 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 that problem. Oh, man. You know, so... I didn't ever do the Blue Apron subscription for the same reason because I have a larger family and they just don't seem geared towards like large families. It's like I feel like you got two people and maybe a kid and that's it. Right. I don't know. It just didn't seem like enough food. So we never actually tried that. But, you know, we do load up on the subscriptions just like there's Spotify, Netflix, Amazon Prime. There's a there's a yoga app that gives you lessons. There's Apple Arcade. I've mentioned that in this pod. Dribble Up. We've got a new thing now. The kids play Xbox, but if they want to play with Xbox with other kids, you got to subscribe to a special thing, and it's cost you money. It's a yearly cost to do Xbox gaming with friends. But one of the interesting things I want to talk about is this Amazon subscribe and save, where you can have stuff like automatically bought for you and sent to you that you use on a regular basis. So... You can get paper towels or dish liquids or things that you're going to have anyway. You already have, you know, already know what you like. You don't necessarily have to pick it up. You can just do subscribe and save with Amazon, which really struck me as being very similar to Dollar Shave Club. Do you know Dollar Shave Club? Dollar Shave Club will send you razors. They'll send you like toiletries based off of what you like, and they just keep it coming to you. And so they're really cutting into the market share of places like Gillette, you know, that are doing these premium razors. And so now they have the subscription model and they'll just send it to you. But what's remarkable about the Amazon subscribe and save is they're creating all of these tiny, we'll call them tiny dollar shave clubs inside of them, because you can subscribe to anything that you use on a regular basis and just get it sent to you. Now you don't have to go to the grocery store anymore. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah, that is really interesting. Have you used it? Like, do you have a few things going there? Yeah. Tracy set it up to deliver um, paper towels. And mm-hmm. I think a couple other things. I don't know off the top of my head, but but yeah. the, it's these it's household staples. And the other thing we subscribe to is a farmer's market produce box. So you get the farmer's market, like fresh vegetables and fruits that are in season and you're from your local farmers and it comes in a box. It's another subscription. Yeah, that's awesome. So here's my question to you guys. What do you think that we buy now one off and use that will eventually become a subscription? Ooh, that's a good question. We have to start by narrowing down the things that you can't get a subscription for, right? I was going to say, I feel like they're all already offered. I mean, there's the toothbrush one, Quip, that will send you like new toothbrush heads and toothpaste. There's, I mean... In New York, there's even, um, maybe it's in other cities too, but there's one called The Sill that will deliver plants. You can do a monthly plant subscription. Oh my gosh, that's cool. Like house plants. Crazy. That sounds cool. I saw a boat one. Like, it's like, don't buy a boat, just join our boat club and you can come on. We have a a plethora of boats that you can choose from. You know, what do you want to do today? And they fix it all. It's like a subscription and you just pick it out and just go. Yeah, that's interesting. It is such a good model for the businesses, right? Because you just have consistent revenue. And it can be really good for consumers too. Like one of the things that I've subscribed to or my company has in the past is Adobe products, right? And if you buy those like one-off, I don't even know if they still sell them as a one-off. I think they switched to only yeah, the monthly. Which yeah, is- only subscription. Yeah, which is like much cheaper 
especially if you're buying a lot of the products or you only need a product for like a couple of weeks or something and you got to pay $600, you know, to buy Illustrator or something. So yeah, that, I mean, that's a different, that that's an example where I think consumers can be benefited in some ways by the subscription in addition to the convenience and everything. I think too, you know, a big thing is just like decision fatigue now that we have you know so many options and that it feels nice in some ways to just have it arrive. Like, you know, even there are like book club subscriptions where, you know, book of the month and a couple of others where it just sends you your next book. You know, you say, you can say what genres you like to read and it's like, don't spend your time searching through all of the new arrivals. Just here's a great book and it just comes. It's like, I think sometimes it's just nice. It feels like someone's sending you a gift you didn't have to think about, even though you're paying for that gift. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a fan of that. I think my printer got tried to get me to subscribe to a monthly fee. Oh my gosh. Don't get me started. The HP printer, I got it. And it was like, you can buy this ink or subscribe. It was like $5 a month. And we'll send you ink automatically when your ink gets low. Right? And that's kind of interesting. If you use a lot of paper, I mean, that would be, you know, and the printer's connected to the internet. So HP can know when the ink is low. And so, I, you know, I hate running out to Staples to go get a cartridge, especially if like work is due or something. I, you know, you don't print that much anymore, but so I can, I could sort of see it. But at the same time, I was like, man, just, you know, enough's enough. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do another subscription. <laughs> <laughs> there are a couple of challenges with subscriptions like that. For one is the product load. The, the printer is interesting because it could actually know how much ink you have and then order when you need more. But most things are not like that, right? Like if you are subscribing to the book club, right? You may not have finished the previous book. Or if you're subscribing to dishwasher detergent, you may still have some. And so managing the quantity and the rate at which you're getting new product is a bit of a challenge. The other challenge with the subscription is, like you said, Drew, just the overhead, right? Like on the one hand, it's simple because it's just in the background, it's going. But then on the other hand, it's like you got all these subscriptions and your money's just kind of flowing out and you're not as connected to those individual purchases. And so you're kind of spending money in the background and you've got the extra overhead, right? Like if you wanted to cancel that printer ink subscription, do you go onto your printer? Do you go online? Do you have an account? Like how do you do that? You know? Yeah. And then finance apps are making value out of just helping you manage your subscriptions, canceling them easily. And that's like a main value proposition is we'll help you manage your subscriptions. Yeah, exactly. So um, I have some quizzes regarding the subscription economy. Actually, it, a lot of it's focused on the movie subscription, network subscription. But I thought I'd start off with this question. Which is greater, the number of Netflix subscribers or the entire populations of France, Spain, and Great Britain combined. Netflix. I'm doing Netflix too. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, yeah, obviously, but it's just amazing. You think about it, like everybody, yeah, man, woman, child <laughs> of all those countries, and then that's that's not even as big as Netflix subscribers. Okay, here's a question Crazy. for you: Who has more subscribers? Rent a Runway, Stitch Fix, or Dollar Shave Club? Ooh, this is this is yours, Jess. Mm. Oh, you got to make a guess there, Dan. Come on. Um, <laughs> you stab in the dark. <laughs> I want to say run the runway. I think that's pretty yeah, popular. I was thinking that. <laughs> sure you were. <laughs> sure you were. <laughs> I have no idea. That's, that, that is correct. 
So how many does Rent a Runway have? Oh, that that I don't know. So we got Netflix has 182 million. I would think Rent a Runway is that like higher end clothes or they just do, any kind they of do clothes? everyday wear. It started as um yeah kind of formal wear and then they expanded. You can do jewelry, handbags, everything on there now. I would think a few million would be would be high for that. I think so too. I was going to say one million. Like even, maybe. Yeah, maybe even less than a million. Yeah. Uh, higher, higher, yes. Wow. Under five million? Higher. Wow. Ten million? Eight million. Yeah, that is more than I would have thought. Way more. And Dollar Shave Club has Holy three cow. million subscribers. Wow. And Stitch Fix has three million subscribers. Wow. How do you get these numbers? It's this new tool I got. <laughs> It's He's called Google. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I guess maybe it. companies post that stuff. They post the stuff. There's press releases yeah. and things like that. So, okay, okay. I mean, the numbers are, you know, they could be a few months old. Right. I'm, ta- right. I'm taking what I get on yeah. Google and copying and pasting it. So, yeah, that's that is fun. interesting. Mm-hmm. Eight million people. So, is that worldwide or is that a US? I mean, Netflix is obviously worldwide. Yeah, Netflix is worldwide. But uh, yeah, I'd be interested. I can't imagine 8 million Americans are subscribing to that. It's got to be broader than the U.S. I feel like they do. There's 330 million. Total people. (laughs) Total. Like babies and grandmas and, you know. I mean, there's a. I think it's a small segment of people that would be using that service. I don't know. That's just me. Yeah, I guess we'd have to look at the amount of Americans that are between 18 and, what, 45? Or where does that... I mean, I bet those numbers are hugely spiked in, like, I know a lot of people here in New York that use Rent the Runway that I can think of just off the top of my head. So, you know, maybe we're like a million. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Do you guys want to do a little uh, fun, hopefully fun content movie quiz? Yeah. Just to sort sure. of highlight how many different networks there are out there. I'm going to give you a sh- the description of a show. And then I want you to name the name of the show and the network that it's on. <laughs> Dan's already feeling really confident. I could tell. Yes, I'm glad you're on here with me. This used to just be me doing this, and it was painful. (laughs) So maybe we'll find some new shows you might want to watch, Dan. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) Your answer is going to be Disney Plus to everything. (laughs) Disney Plus. Disney Plus. I think I saw that on Disney Plus. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, Real quick, are you a subscriber to Amazon Prime? Yes. I think we both are. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you 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 know, you might get some of the Amazon ones, maybe if you've seen them, goodbye. Okay. So a financial advisor drags his family from Chicago to Missouri, where he must launder money to appease a drug boss. Can I buzz in? Buzz in. Ozark on Netflix. Okay. One point each. I forgot to tell you, we're keeping score, Dan. There you go. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean one point each? Did I get a point? No. Uh, she got a point for the show and for the network. Oh, oh, oh. Because okay. you might know the show wow. and not know the network. Okay. There you go. <laughs> this show tracks the lives of the roy family as they contemplate their future once their aging father begins to step back from the media and entertainment conglomerate they control this show tracks the lives of the roy family (laughs) as they contemplate the future once their aging father steps back from the media conglomerate that they control no just won some emmys succession you googled it man Well, for, did you Google it? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> probably. If you got to Google it, get the network right, my man. Net- Netflix? points. That's Amazon it's, Prime. Maybe it's on Netflix, too. Oh, it could be. Okay, so... Dan, I'm not <laughs> giving you points for that. Is it Amazon? <laughs> okay, okay. 
All right. This show imagines an alternate history where the Axis powers win World War II. Rome, Berlin, Tokyo win World War II. Tick tock, tick tock. Man in the High Castle. What's that no? on? No. On Amazon no, Prime. Okay. This show follows Din Djarin, a lonely bounty hunter in the outer reaches of the galaxy. Tick tock. I thought no. Jess would be oh, going here for me. But. <laughs> this was for you, Dan. Come on. Let's go. What it's is dis- it again? <laughs> Somebody going <laughs> into outer space? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this show follows Din Djarin, a lonely bounty hunter in the outer reaches of the galaxy. Oh, oh. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes. Keep it coming. The Mandalorian? Yes. On Disney Plus. Yes. It is for me. Yes. And I've seen that show. There you I did go. not know his name. What's his name again? In Dijarin? That, is that his E-I-N-D-J-A-R-I-N. Is that his real name or his <laughs> character's name? <laughs> I'm not following. That's not here. the actor. I think <laughs> I I think that's the character's name, but they, okay. they may maybe they call him something different. They just call him the Mandalorian, like the whole oh, movie. Okay. So that yeah. threw me. But yes, the bounty hunter. Fans. <laughs> that was that was good. That was actually a great show. Okay. All right. We got Dan's back. He's engaged. All right. <laughs> are we tied? All right. Are we tied? I yeah, think we it's are tied. tied. It's tied right now. Wow. All right. In a world where fertility rates have collapsed as a result of sexually transmitted diseases and environmental pollution, the totalitarian government of Gilead establishes rule in the former United States in the aftermath of a civil war. Society is organized by power-hungry leaders and newly created social classes in which women are brutally subjugated. Handmaid's Tale, Hulu. Got it. Oh, crushed it, Jess. That was great. When did you have it? Like, when did you know? Oh, right, right away. Yeah. Oh, you know. Oh, okay. Paternally. Yeah. And in a world, you had yeah. it. In a in world. World. <laughs> that, was, that was it. Fertility <laughs> rates. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is this fun? You want to keep going? Mm, that's all right. <laughs> okay, that means not. <laughs> I think I'm just gonna get brut- brutally beat here. Okay, I- right. I'm glad you threw one in there for me, though, Drew. Yeah. <laughs> or here's one. This unapologetically candid drama looks at the modern workplace through the lens of people who help America wake up. Oh, help Americans wake up. The m- morning show. Yes. Oh. On Amazon. No. Or, no, 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 on Apple TV. Oh, yes. I was going to steal that point. <laughs> I, I did get it wrong on my you first did. guess. Did she jump in there and get it? I, it? I think she might have. We'll have okay. to listen to the tape. All right. Well, I'm giving it to her. <laughs> okay. Well, so one, two, three, five, four, five, five, five to three. three. Mm-hmm. All right. A couple more. This follows the self-documented daily struggles of 10 individuals as they survive in the wilderness as long as possible using limited amount of survival equipment. With the exception of medical check-ins, the participants are isolated from each other and all other humans. It's a reality show. Amazon. No? Because I Was, know what you're talking about, but I don't know the name of the show. It's like this. It's like Survivor, but different because they're just out there. And what are they when they're out there? Like They're alone. Uh-huh. Uh, alone. <laughs> alone. <laughs> yes, it's alone. It's not on, is it on Netflix, maybe? Yes. Okay. I know I had seen that. Yeah, yeah. All right. We'll give you one point for that. I hadn't heard of that at all. How about this? A 30-something woman in London who runs a cafe lives a sex-filled life with a sense of humor that hides the tragedy she has com- hasn't come to term with yet. Terms with yet. Yep. Amazon Prime. Bang. <laughs> <laughs> one more. I, mean, I can't win with one more, but let's do it anyway. <laughs> well, I, have, I have two. I have two more. Okay. Well, you better do two then. All right. Here we go. <laughs> we got it. We got it. <laughs> 
Got to give the guy a chance here. The series tells the story of hedge fund hedge fund manager Bobby Axelrod as he accumulates wealth and power in the world of high finance. Axelrod's aggressive tactics to secure high returns frequently cross into the illegal acts that United States attorney Chuck Rhodes attempts to prosecute. Shoot, I've watched several like financial movies that are similar to that recently, but oh, I I feel like I know what you're talking about. I cannot think of the name. Um... Paul Giamatti, isn't it? Can I guess? Is it on Netflix? No. Oh, then maybe I'm thinking no. of that one. Amazon. Am- <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> it's uh, Billions on Showtime. <sighs> billions, yes. Okay. All right, here's the final one. Okay. Mm-hmm. This series unpacks the black female experience from the perspective of two female protagonists, Issa and Molly in Los Angeles, who have been best friends with each other since their day, their college days at Stanford. Insecure? Mm-hmm. Now I'm blanking on where it is. Is it HBO? HBO. Boom. Crushed it, Jess. Crushed it, Jess. Yeah, you're the winner. (laughs) Nice. I think that's our first ever like formal like game thing going on there, Dan. What do you think? Yeah, that was good. That was good. Uh, I think it only proves I've just spent a lot of time at home. (laughs) 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 All right, cool. Well, let's uh, wrap this section up. Any other thoughts on subscription economy before we go? Nope. It's been good. Thanks for sharing. This episode is brought to you by Weekly, our app that helps you stick to a budget. It's in the Apple iOS app store. You can also find us at weeklybudgeting.com. We have a completely different take on budgeting. The traditional method is to operate on a month, to put everything into categories and subtract the money out of categories. But this ends in frustration for lots of people because they get halfway through the month. They may have overspent or underspent a category. They're not sure where to grab the money from. Oh, by the way, does this sound familiar? Hey, honey, where's the Target receipt? I'm trying to figure out if that is a household expense or a food expense. It's just a disaster. So then you end up at the end of the month, you're not sure what happened, and you just give up. So we've come up with a different way, which is to operate on a weekly basis. We take your recurring income, your recurring expenses, we subtract your expenses from your income, and then we come up with what you can safely spend for a week. Then we keep you in touch with that number, downloading your transactions from the bank, so that you can always know what is safe to spend. This alleviates the guilt of spending and lets you spend with more joy. So we hope you give the app a try. Um, You can go to weeklybudgeting.com, click on the icon, go to the app store. You can also search in the app store for weekly budget or weekly budgeting. Right now we're at the top of the organic rankings for that. And give it a try. Let us know what you think. And welcome to the podcast and welcome to the weekly community. We would like to welcome to the pod Alyssa Ponticello, fashion and food blogger and social media influencer whose beautiful work can be found at runwayshef.com or on Instagram at runwayshef. Thanks for coming on the pod. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So on your blog, you describe at uh, the Runway Chef, your focus is to be the daily source of finding the style that surrounds you in the everyday. Can you describe how you started your blog and sort of what fuels the content on it? So I actually started when we initially moved to New York. My husband, he transferred for his job. And in the midst of job searching myself and not losing my mind completely, I was like, let me do something creative, like, you know, start a blog. And this was, gosh, like 10 years now. So blogs were in their baby days. 
and no one really had one yet, but I was like, you know, this, this seems fun. And it was like, I'd also done MySpace in college and it just seemed like a blog blog was an extension of that. And I was, it was a way that I could combine a bunch of different things that I was into. So I just started it as a hobby to keep myself sane. And I kept it going even after I got a job. And then eventually it started to pay more than the job. So I stuck with the blog. So how do you choose the topics that you're going to blog about? So initially the name Runway Chef, it was just food and fashion. And it's kind of become a whole lifestyle site at this point. Um, As I started to travel more or do more home things, more entertaining, it's really just about anything and everything that I love and find joy in, style in, things that that bring me joy and happiness. And I do still believe that you can find style in everything. You know, it's like how your food's presented or how your home's put together or, you know, the design of a hotel you stay at. So I think that really translate across, across so many subjects. And that's why I've kind of branched out into covering so many topics as well. You've created a a beautiful curated life on the blog and on your Instagram channel. And you have other channels too, right? Like I think Pinterest is on there, but we've heard that you're actually very strategic about when you choose to buy a luxury item or, and often enjoy like hunting for bargains. So when do you decide to spend the extra money on a fashion item or when do you decide to actually go the, the bargain route of looking for something that's more on sale? I think for me, so I grew up with a mom who liked to go garage sailing every weekend. So it's kind of like in me at this point to just hunt for a deal. And I think for the most part, I stick with a deal when it's, you know, everyday items and prefer to save up for something that is a long-term purchase, like something I know that's going to last a lifetime, or it's not just like a trend item. I also think of things in terms of like the quality versus quantity. Can I get this for less and it will still look about the same or still work about the same? And if it if it's not, then that's where I like splurge on a designer item or a more expensive item. But if I can find a deal and I and I have the time to find a deal or wait for a deal, then that's that's like how I kind of decipher between the two. Do you find there's like a particular category of products that you you spend more money on like would you spend a lot of money on like a designer jacket but you'd never spend a lot of money on like kitchenware or is it just kind of across the board wherever the value is i think it's kind of across the board because like there are things in the kitchen i'll splurge on like you know like a kitchen aid because you're going to use that forever and i also think about how often i'm using something so again like a kitchen aid i'm using that almost every day a jacket for me, especially now living in LA, I'm not using jackets as much. So it's like, I wouldn't want to spend as much on that. But a bag, for example, especially if it's a classic color or a classic style, once you have that, you kind of have it forever. And you also are using a bag every day. So I think about it in terms of that as well, how much I'm using it. Yeah, that makes sense. So what is something that you've spent a lot of money on, like a luxury item that you just feel great about? That's like, that was just such a solid purchase. It depends on who you ask. If you ask me or my husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell us both answers. That's fine. Yeah. I think probably a designer bag, again, because it's something that it's like I'm using it every day. 
again, like if you talk to my husband, he'd be like, that's not practical. You can just get a bag that you can use, whatever, you know, and for him, it'd be something more like in the kitchen. But for me, I think it's definitely like a bag because I'm using it every day. <laughs> so there's like an element of value that you place in the bag and like the how how you look holding the bag and how the bag looks and its functionality or how it makes you feel. Yeah. 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 Like I, it's like how. Yeah. And I think maybe the bag for me, too, is a bit of like a like a milestone in my business. Like it was something I treated myself to after like reaching a milestone. So I think it holds that value as well versus something, say, like a bigger kitchen item where it's like, OK, yeah, this is expensive, but it's like you get it because you need it type of thing. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. <laughs> okay, this is a bit off topic, but can can you give the uninitiated myself? I don't, Dan. I don't know how much you know about bags, but can, can you give the uninitiated like a hierarchy of your favorite bags and what they might cost? I mean, they're pretty much all from the same brand. They're all from Chanel, so okay. I'm not like an expert mm-hmm. okay. on like. <laughs> all designer bags. I'm very particular in the looks and the colors. I do have a couple Louis Vuittons. I've gotten most of them secondhand. Um, like I still have to find a deal with them. So where do you get that type of thing secondhand? So there are different retail shops that specialize in secondhand designer items. Um, and then there's also a few websites. So they like go through the process of like verifying everything, um, making sure it's all legit. And it has like, you know, the dust bag that it comes with the different tags, all of those types of things. So I have still managed to get a deal (laughs) with a designer item. Yeah, that's Um, interesting. Yeah, which I mean, it's kind of cool because it does make designer items, even though they're still expensive, it does make it a little bit more accessible than if you were just having to walk into the store and get it. Yeah, that's smart to use a service to buy something like that. Just a few months ago, we were talking to our kids about counterfeit. And I can't remember exactly how this all evolved, but we ended up watching this YouTube video about how to tell if a Louis Vuitton bag is counterfeit or not. And it's like subtle things about like where the print is and the stitching and how the print on the leather lines up and like all sorts of stuff. So like little things you would never know if you were just like, oh, look at this Louis Vuitton. You would think it. I remember that was a big thing in New York, especially in certain areas. Like people would set up like these, um, you know, blankets just on the side of the street with like their counterfeit bags. And like, you know, obviously if the cops were coming, they'd like quickly like pack it up and run off. But I remember like when I first went to New York, I was like, wow, like people just sell designer bags on the sidewalk. <laughs> <laughs> I had so much to learn at that point. I was so naive. <laughs> Yeah, that's humble of you to just admit that. I think even I would know, like, those are not legit. (laughs) I I don't know. I guess I was like, I was just, you know, set on getting a designer bag. So I was just like, I guess this is New York. I don't know. Like, (laughs) that's why everyone has designer bags. (laughs) So if you held a designer bag and a counterfeit bag, would the non discerning person be able to immediately tell, like, one's heftier? One's clearly nicer, or would it really be hard to tell? Is it hard for you to tell if it's not certified? I can definitely tell with Chanel's now. I don't, again, I don't know about like other bags and I've definitely learned to pick up on like certain things to look for, but I also will say like counterfeits have gotten so much better. Not that I've seen one in a long time, but I know like I've heard that they've gotten a lot better and 
I think some of these secondhand sites are also having trouble with that because they've gotten so much better. So I think it's becoming harder and harder for the average person to discern the difference. It does beg the question, right, of the psychology of spending. Why would you buy a authentic bag versus a counterfeit bag? Besides what, the fact you, that it's breaking the law. Like. Right, right. <laughs> Right, it is breaking the law, right? That. Minor detail. That's a, you know, designer, you know, quote unquote. No, I, I get what you're going at. It's like if, it, if it's mostly the same, but right. one has a brand on it and one doesn't, is it worth the money and the psychological boost that you get from owning the brand? And maybe it is because it's it's the way it makes you feel, right? You mentioned, you mentioned how it made you feel to own a beautiful thing and also how it made you feel about your accomplishments, right? Right, right. I mean, I'm sure for some people it's definitely too, like it's, it's a way to, to get that feeling without having to spend a lot. And for them, they probably can justify that it's counterfeit. Like you said, because it's so similar. It's like, Oh, what does it matter? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. What are some other fun things you love to buy? What are some other, your most favorite products? I like beauty and then just like fun, like food products. Like when we travel normally, when we're traveling, I just love picking up different things when traveling. So like food items or going into, you know, small like mom and pop shops, just kind of as a way to remember the trip, especially like when I'm cooking, it's like, oh, this spice I got, you know, in Italy or whatever. So I really like buying things like that. I actually, I don't, I really don't buy a lot. Like normally I really do try to be careful, like outside of the designer items here and there, I do try to be pretty conscious of what I'm buying. So is authenticity, like that's the theme that I sort of picked up on there, like authenticity in terms of the bag, authenticity of buying spices in the, right. in the place where, you know, they use the spices to cook the food. Is that the theme that sort of runs through your sense of style or, I, I or hadn't how, thought how would you like character? That, but I okay. mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good observation, Drew. <laughs> Thanks. Oh God, please I, please I should... rephrase in the form of a question. This is an interview. <laughs> Can I add that to my about me? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> no, I think I I value like uh experiences and like connecting and and things that hold memory. I, again, I hadn't thought of it from like an authenticity, but more like memory or connections with people or place or time or things like that. So the name of the blog and the Instagram is Runway Chef. Have you been a chef in the past or do you like to cook or talk about the food angle? I grew up an Italian family. So cooking is like, you know, second nature. It's in my blood. Um, I'm not a trained chef, like professionally trained, but I've just, I've been cooking for as long as I can remember. And it's something that I just really enjoy. So that's why I've, you know, incorporated it into what I do. I actually develop recipes as well for people outside of the blog. So then there's that aspect with food. Yeah, it's, it's a huge part of what I do for sure. What was one of the best food experiences that you've had? I think in Italy, in Torino, which is actually where my family is from, we stayed in an Airbnb that was owned by this bakery. Like the bakery was in the front, the front and the Airbnb was in the back. And they kind of just like welcomed us in and we basically like hung out in the bakery and like they had my husband go help them bake one morning. It was like 4am. They were like, you're coming down, you're helping us bake, you know, whatever. And 
yeah, he went down and he's like, yeah, they were like serving wine at 6am. They're like, here, have this, like, have, like, then there's like Nutella and like, it was, so it was a whole, it was a whole thing. I could just, uh, that's a, that's the wine and the bread and the going at it. Sounds fantastic. What was your question, Dan? Oh, I was just going to ask more about this developing recipes for people outside the blog. Is that like uh, you develop a recipe for a specific person or on request? I work with food brands to develop recipes for like their website and their social media content creation kind of thing. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's not like a specific person, but more so a food brand and then just develop recipes around, you know, their line of products or a specific product or like holiday recipes or, you know, things like that. Yeah, that's cool. So what's that process like for you when someone's like, we need a holiday recipe, where do you start? I think initially, like, we'll start, like, with a, you know, they'll come to me and we kind of concept together some ideas. You know, they tell me what they're looking for, like, holiday recipes. So then I go and, like, I'm like, okay, like, this pairs well with this flavor. Or, like, I test different things, play around um, with different pairings. And then I go back to them with ideas. They pick, you know, whatever ones they want. And then I create them and shoot them and give them to the, to the client. So wow, that, that is really impressive to me. I feel like if someone asked me to make a recipe, I would just like look online for a recipe, <laughs> you know, like that's gotta be, I mean, I, I can't even comprehend that, that kind of skill set to be able to just start from scratch and like pair things and make something new. Plus there's gotta be so many recipes online these days that I don't know, you know, it just seems like to come up with something original you just would have to have the skill and the, and the experience and the flavor palette kind of figured out. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's definitely, ch- I mean, you know, it's like, like you said, it, there's so many recipes. It's like everyone has like the best chocolate chip cookie recipe, you know, and it's, it can definitely be challenging at times to come up with like new flavors or flavor combinations. And I think that's where like, I definitely miss traveling this year. Cause I would get so much inspiration from going to different places and different restaurants and eating different food and experiencing different cultures. So it's definitely a lot more challenging when you're just at home, but it's still, you know, it's fun. It's a different way of being creative. Is there a recipe that you came up with where you were like, yeah, that worked. That was a good one. Hey me, you did a good job. That kind of, (laughs) um, I don't think, I don't think any of my recipes ever, like it's a joke in our our family that, that all the women, they're like, ever, nothing's ever good enough. Like my grandma, she makes the best spaghetti and meatballs, but she's like, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. And who would eat this? Like she'll try to like take the plate away. She's like, it's awful. Um, so I think I, I get that a little bit. Like I'm like, nothing's ever good enough. But I think there's this like one pan skillet rigatoni, like chicken parm meatball situation that I made. Mm. And that's probably a favorite that I always go back to. Nice. I mean, if there's pasta involved, it's like, it's, you know, it's probably okay. <laughs> it's a win. <laughs> that challenge seems like a normal kind of creator challenge where you just always want to make it better. And like, you can see where you want it to be and it's just not quite there. Yeah. That, no, that's true. I, I, you're right. I mean, anything creative, it's like kind of maddening, like trying to get that perfection. Did you um, ever watch Everybody Loves Raymond? 
I did not. No. Do you remember the episode? <laughs> well, they're they're Italian. There's an episode where they discover that sometimes their mom uses ragu in the in the sauce, and they're just hilarious. mortified. Mortified. <laughs> they discovered the secret about their mom. Oh no! Yeah, no, I never watched that show. I think I'm like one of you know two people. So I was wondering, have you ever used a food subscription and did you find like HelloFresh or Blue Apron and did you find that it worked for you? Yeah, we've used a couple. We've tried them out. And for us personally, we just didn't find that it worked. Like I still am always going to the grocery store. So which I feel like kind of defeats the purpose of the box or the boxes. I think also too, it's just me and my husband. I think if we had kids, it would probably definitely be more of a lifesaver we just found that it didn't work for our lifestyle. I think they're a great concept though. And I also think, especially, I would say the other situation where they think they would be really great or is for people who don't cook a lot or maybe don't know how to cook because I think it's they do a great job of really like laying out all the steps and explaining the ingredients and things like that, which, you know, again, if you aren't familiar with cooking, I could find that being really helpful. Yeah, that's an interesting like uh, added benefit is because you so these these things these subscriptions you've used to give you kind of the raw ingredients and you you make it from there. Right. Yeah, like they give you everything, the recipe mm-hmm. card, the ingredients, everything. So again, like if you haven't cooked or maybe you have kids and you don't have a lot of time but you want this nice meal, I think that would totally make sense. So can I ask you a bit about the business of being a social media influencer and a blogger? Let's do it. <laughs> okay. So, first of all, I guess when you started your blog, you must have had a sense that you you had a sense of style. So, like, how did you know that it was catching on? How did you say, you know what, I'm on to something? Yeah, I think when people start engaging and coming to you with specific questions, I think that's one way to gauge. I think also when brands are paying attention and brands start coming to you and asking you or noticing what you're doing. It's kind of like, oh, wait, maybe maybe someone is out there in, on the internet reading this. I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> someone besides my mom. <laughs> so you literally just threw it out there and then people started gravitating towards it. Yeah, somehow. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. The internet's crazy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so what per, if you don't mind me asking and feel free to tell me to shove off, but... <laughs> What percentage of your income comes from the social media influencer angle where brand where you're doing sponsored posts and things like that versus your regular work? Or is it all in the social media realm? When I say regular work, I, you're a writer as well, right? You, I do hire. more photography. So like photography. The, the okay. photography and like the recipe development is probably my, my other big category. So what, what percentage is part of the social media influencing versus your other work? I think they're actually, the photography is probably a little bit more than the influencer work. It depends on the season and time of year. But I think definitely now I have, I bring in more of my income from the photography and recipe development as opposed to the blog and influencing work, which is nice in some ways because it's allowed me more freedom again in the influencing work and being able to like share more of what I want and then I can make more of the the income from doing the food photography and recipe development. So if someone is out there listening to this pod and they're, and they're saying, Hey, you know, maybe I could be an influencer, you know, people say I have style. Would you say it's hard? It's harder than you think, or is it like, Hey, it's easy. Go for it. Or how do you define whether you're ready to take that leap? 
You know, I mean, I think a lot of people will say at, at this point, the influencing blogging market is oversaturated. But I think if it's something you are passionate about and you have um, a unique point of view to share, which, you know, anyone ha- could, it's, it's your point of view. So anyone can be unique. I think that there's still room to start a blog or start an Instagram page. And I think just don't go into it with expectations. I think that's a huge difference now. Like when I started versus when people start now, you know, 10 years ago, again, like no one really had a blog. So it was kind of just like, this is fun. You know, now people know that you can make money from it. And so they're like, oh, well, I'm just gonna, you know, start an Instagram account and I'll be an influencer. And it's, you can't go into it with that expectation. But if you go into it with the expectation of, you know, this is something I love, like I love cooking and I want to just share my recipes or I want to share my family recipes. um, And you just do it for that. You know, I think definitely there's room for that. So one of the themes uh, for this talk, I think, is like life's luxuries on a budget. So before we wrap up here, I was wondering, could you give your best tips on how to afford authentic, beautiful things, but on a budget? I know I mentioned the the websites like for designer items. So I think part of that is doing your research and finding different websites or um, resale shops. I think also definitely time being patient. Like there are definitely pieces that is more pertaining to like home items, but there's something I know that I want and I will literally wait, you know, a year to hunt it down for the best price versus maybe just like getting it right away, which may mean I go a year without like a couch, but you know, <laughs> where do you like to hunt it down at <laughs> for home stuff and furniture? Facebook marketplace is actually a gold mine. I don't know if you guys have, I've sold things on okay. Facebook marketplace. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's some treasures on there. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's something you, what's, what's the, what's the favorite thing that you bought off Facebook marketplace? Did you get your couch there? No, I did not get my couch. <laughs> I did not get my couch there. Now I'm stumped, even though half my stuff, I'm like looking, I'm like, what are, okay. what are we having? Like, what? It's like Facebook Marketplace. I don't know. Um, we just got a dresser for free that we're going to redo on Facebook oh. Marketplace. Oh, nice. Okay. So I'd say that's, you know, that was a good one. Um, you just have to have an open mind. Like, again, the dresser was free. It needs a new, you know, it needs some love. It needs like a new coat of paint. But But you loved it. Yeah. And it pays off. And then, you know, I can save money to spend on another Chanel. You know. There you go. That's right. <laughs> the bags. Exactly. <laughs> I could just imagine you with like twelve Chanel bags, like six <laughs> in each arm, just walking down the road. That's why I needed the new dresser. Oh, I need like you know, I got to put the the Chanels in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> well, to wrap up, I understand that you have some charitable causes that you like to advocate for. Can you tell us about those? There isn't a specific organization, but I'm very much, you know, passionate. I grew up volunteering at a soup kitchen as well as a nursing home. So I think Mm. those are two things, you know, homeless and elderly that still stand out to me. It's always just about like who's kind of overlooked in society and who's the most vulnerable. Homeless in LA is obviously a huge, huge issue here. So that's, you know, it's very much in your face here. And so I think that's something that definitely I'm still very passionate about. 
and then of course animals and the environment because I live right by the beach and I see the effects of you know trash on the beaches every day and and things like that so those are all kind of important things to me cool well that about wraps it up Dan do you have any more questions before we go I don't think so. Thanks for joining us. It's been really interesting to understand your your journey and your insights. Thank we appreciate you. it. It was great talking to you guys. I appreciate you having me on. Okay, great. Now you can add podcasting to your sphere of influence. I can. <laughs> it's my, just growing. My first official podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone into audio, baby. It's all over. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. Thank Bye-bye. you. Yep. Take care. Bye. This episode is brought to you by Weekly our app that helps you stick to a budget. It's in the Apple iOS app store. You can also find us at weeklybudgeting.com. We have a completely different take on budgeting. The traditional method is to operate on a month, to put everything into categories and subtract the money out of categories. But this ends in frustration for lots of people because they get halfway through the month, they may have overspent or underspent a category, they're not sure where to grab the money from, Oh, by the way, does this sound familiar? Hey, honey, where's the target receipt? I'm trying to figure out if that is a household expense or a food expense. It's just a disaster. So then you end up at the end of the month, you're not sure what happened, and you just give up. So we've come up with a different way, which is to operate on a weekly basis. We take your recurring income, your recurring expenses, we subtract your expenses from your income, and then we come up with what you can safely spend for a week. Then we keep you in touch with that number, downloading your transactions from the bank, so that you can always know what is safe to spend. This alleviates the guilt of spending and lets you spend with more joy. So we hope you give the app a try. Um, You can go to weeklybudgeting.com, click on the icon, go to the app store. You can also search in the app store for weekly budget or weekly budgeting. Right now we're at the top of the organic rankings for that. And give it a try, let us know what you think, and welcome to the podcast and welcome to the weekly community. So this week, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, and we'd be remiss if we did not mention or reflect on the changes that RBG had to financial equity in the United States. So Jessica, I heard on the on the late show with Stephen Colbert, of all places, that RBG was the reason that women didn't need to have a male cosigner for, say, applying for a mortgage, or I think even applying for a credit card which is kind of hard for me to imagine (laughs) like in today's world that that was the way it was. But could you tell us more about which Supreme Court rulings influenced financial equity in the U.S.? Well, first to begin with, I feel like we need to kind of take a step back and look at some of Ginsburg's early career. And I think a few instances that really show how, you know, moments in her life kind of led her to want to advocate for some of these changes um, and really, you know, be a leader in the fight for equality. Um, So kind of to, to begin, you know, she goes to Cornell for undergrad and gets out of school and it's a prestigious university. You think, great, I'll, I'll get a good job. And as she's applying, she discloses that she's pregnant with her first child, her and her husband. And she's downgraded from the position that she wants to apply for all the way down to like basic typist, which is, you know, w- way beneath what she was applying for. She takes the job anyway, because that's kind of the sign of the times. Uh, you know, if you're pregnant, you can't get those higher up positions. So she goes on from there 
Harvard Law School, ends up graduating law school from Columbia. And it's kind of during this time in her early career that she goes to Sweden for work. And while she's there, a presiding judge is eight months pregnant. And Sweden at the time, this is the early 60s, is just like vastly ahead of the U.S. in terms of you know, male-female equality. And she's kind of blown away. You know, she that would never be happening in the 60s. She mentions that at that time, if teachers were even showing that they were pregnant, like visibly pregnant, they were removed from the classroom. You know, is is crazy to think about. That's crazy. You know? So all of a sudden, she's kind of opened up to this idea, like maybe we can make some changes here and maybe I could be a part of those. So from there, she, in 1972, becomes the first tenured law professor at Columbia and really kind of starts to work with the ACLU and dig into some of the like legal work that will go on to build this foundation of, you know, some of these acts. And I think that's where we begin to see, you know, some of the cases that she's now famous for. So the first one is Reed versus Reed. This is 1971. And it's the first case that she argues to the Supreme Court on behalf of the ACLU. And essentially, the case is that men are better qualified to act as an administrator of an estate than women are. And she says, why? <laughs> that's uh, that's not probably true. So she kind of builds this beginning of her argument that you see kind of carry through her whole career, which is discrimination on the basis of sex. You shouldn't be more more or less qualified to be the administrator of an estate, to, you know, take on someone's inheritance. Any of these things, male or female, it should just be what are your qualifications as a person. So that's kind of the first big landmark case. Then we get to 1974. And this is kind of what you were mentioning, Drew, um, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. So all of her legal work that's been kind of she's been writing and working on in these years of the early 70s, they act as the foundation of this Equal Credit Opportunity Act. And up until this point, married women are denied getting credit cards in their name, getting bank loans in their name. Single women have a very hard time building any sort of credit. So, you know, this is the early 70s and women just are are not able to build up this, you know, financial portfolio. So based on all of, you know, kind of her work that precedes this, this act is able to be passed. And that's a big one. You know, we, like you said, Joe, it's hard to imagine today, you know, how many women have a credit card in their wallet right now and that 50 years ago that that was not the case. So they would not have been allowed to even apply without their husbands? Or would single women have not been allowed to apply? So from what I read, single women could apply, but had a tough time getting credit. So, you know, when you're sitting down with a banker and you're a single woman trying to get, let's say, a mortgage in your name or, you know, open a credit card, that it was a difficult process. But married women, it seemed to, you know, almost hurt even more because you you really couldn't. It had to be in your husband's name, um, you know, anything through the bank. So, it's just kind of mind boggling a little bit, but that's where we were. And the third case that I want to talk about is is really one I feel like that, you know, she often is kind of known for, and that's Ledbetter versus Goodyear. So we fast forward a little bit and she's on the Supreme Court at this point. And we're in 2007, which again, think of how recent that is. And Ledbetter was 
a female supervisor at Goodyear Tire Plant. She worked there for over two decades, I think, and had, you know, was in the minority, I'll say, at the supervisor level for being a woman. You know, most of her other colleagues were men. So she finally leaves the position and finds out that all of the male supervisors who were at her same level were making more than her for decades. You know, when you think of how much that could compound and build a personal wealth or be able to, you know, be invested in retirement and or any of those things, like it really robs you of um, quite a big, big portion of money that, you know, they were getting and she wasn't. And so this case goes all the way to the Supreme Court and it actually rules in Goodyear's favor, but Ginsburg dissents and gives a really, you know, kind of passionate argument about, you know, that discrimination towards women in the workplace can build up and be hard to witness in the beginning. You know, Ledbetter had examples of sexual harassment over the years at work, being one of the few women there. Again, you know, pay wasn't disclosed what her male counterparts were getting paid. So, you know, she just she didn't know until much later. And that was one of the things that, you know, Ginsburg really fought for was that, again, this, you know, on the basis of sex, we can't be discrimi- be discriminatory. And to that point, we're, we're still, so that was in 2007, you know, we're still at 82 cents for every dollar that a man earns in this country. And so, you know, I think for all that she did for financial equity, it, it goes to show we still have a ways to go. But, you know, just looking at her career, it's, it's so prolific and so important to kind of reflect back on how much she really did in that time span. I have a follow-up question regarding that third case that you mentioned. If you, in your research, she was the dissenting opinion. What was the case for, what was the argument that won the case? Yep. So the vote was, I think, 5-4 in the favor of Goodyear. And essentially that too much time had passed since, you know, this was, I don't have this stat, but a bit of time after she had left that job when she finally, you know, found out that, hey, all, all of my male coworkers were making way more than me for decades. And then finally, you know, was able to build a case and get it all the way to the Supreme Court. So they essentially said, you know, no, you've, you've phased out. It was a statute of limitations. And that's kind of what Ginsburg said. You know, you don't know this information on day one of being hired, what your male colleagues are making. Maybe there should be more transparency there. But that's what the kind of loophole they found to argue against it. So could I ask a personal question, which is, sure. I know as Americans in general, you know, we admire and respect the work that she's put in, but do you as an American woman feel a special connection to her? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's not all that many women like that who we have as examples kind of, you know, of people who have defied the odds and, you know, fought for women's equality and made it to the quote unquote top, you know, um, she was the second female Supreme Court justice. And, you know, just really throughout her whole life, there's so many examples of her, you know, being just in a small handful in a big room of men, basically, and, you know, making her voice heard. So she's certainly, um, you know, someone I just personally admire. And I think that's one of the things that women, you know, besides her obvious work, really just kind of connect with her about. Okay, thank you. Sure. Well, I think there's a really interesting parallel to an earlier podcast we did, Jess, where we talked about women taking on financial responsibilities, like in today's day and age, that they didn't expect to take on, right? In terms of running the family finances, managing a budget, or even doing other things like applying for a loan for a house or something, right? That maybe 
maybe 30 years ago, girls weren't taught that as much and maybe even still today. And so I think like what's interesting about this to me is kind of this two steps to equality. The first step is legal equality, right? Like we have to eliminate laws that actually support inequality based off of race or gender or some other characteristic. But that's only half the battle, right? Like the second phase is really actual equality, which only comes from developing the skills and having the education and the opportunity in order to know enough or have the skills to get that better job or, or get paid more. And I think kind of the example you're pointing out here is her efforts to push through not only like the legal battles, but also in the professional world against the odds is what brought her the success, right? And I think there's like there's just a battle. There's a battle after the battle. Once you get the legal equality, then there's still the battle of actually getting the education and changing the culture to where you can take advantage of those opportunities that are no longer being restricted legally. No, I, th- I think that's so true. And so much goes into it. It's from, you know, the very beginning where how we're raising, you know, our young girls to kind of open them up to those possibilities. And, you know, representation matters so much. It it meant a lot to see women on the Supreme Court. It means a lot for me to see women as the CEO of a company or, you know, in these top positions. It's just then you can imagine, oh, that, you know, that could be me someday. So, it really takes these kind of pioneering women to break through and just keep fighting what she did for so long to make it feel like for the rest of us, well, that could be possible for me too. Yeah, it feels like such a close parallel to a earlier conversation Drew and I had about Black Lives Matter in America and that whole movement and, and the inequality that's been experienced in the past, right? And how do we continue to overcome that? And so I, I've thought a lot about that, right? Like from a white male American who is, I've never been discriminated against that I can remember. How can I open things up to those that are less like me or in the minority or have been discriminated against? And then I think the other side of that is those that are in the minority. Sometimes you do have to go somewhere where you are the minority, where you don't fit in and you have to push down those boundaries and do things that that are harder than your peers in order to have the same headway, right? This kind of the ongoing pioneering after the initial step. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of uh, now on on all of us, this next generation kind of, you know, carry that torch for her and, you know, keep living out those ideals that she kind of fought for, um, you know, to make it worth it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And for you, to, me and you, Dan, as white, as white guys, we got to go to where we're in the minority. Is that what you were saying? Like we, we feel what it's like on the other side. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, that isn't what I was saying, but yeah, that's an interesting thought. Where would I go to be in the minority? Basically anybody, anywhere in the world, India, yep. China, <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> That'd be great. That sounds like a vacation to me. <laughs> <laughs> Type of girl and everybody knows